1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. In this episode from the Institute's Vault, we have an excerpt from a two-day symposium, Hannah Arendt Right Now, which explored the philosopher's impact on the 21st century. The 2006 event was held on the 100th anniversary of Arendt's birth. In this episode, Dr. Ronnie Brauman describes how Arendt influenced his thinking about the politics of humanitarian aid. Brauman was president of Doctors Without Borders from 1982 to 1994. In 1999, he co-directed The Specialist, Portrait of a Modern Criminal, a documentary about the trial of Adolf Eichmann. Samantha Power responds to Brauman's presentation. Power was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations from 2013 to 2017 and author of A Problem from Hell, America, and the Age of Genocide, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 2003.
1: My standpoint is that of a humanitarian practitioner. I've been involved in medical humanitarian action for almost 30 years. And it is in the midst of this practice, it is in the course of humanitarian problems and dilemmas that I ran into Anna Arendt and found in her book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, very interesting ways of raising question, enlightening some uh, unexpected facets of certain problems. And this is what I'm going to, to talk about. Then I'll come to Eichmann, in the, well, that started with Eichmann in Jerusalem, and of course there is a close relationship between my findings in this book and the film, which was made uh, 10 years later, and from Eichmann in Jerusalem, I'll say a few words also about Zionism and Israel, because I think it's very difficult, and uh, at least from my point of view, it's very difficult to speak of Anna and without handling this issue, this very sensitive issue of Israel, Zionism and, and uh, uh, so on. So, the, I have to come back to the famine in which broke out in, in Ethiopia in 1984-1985. This famine claimed about seven to 900,000 lives in about uh, 18 months. It was an absolute disaster. A huge solidarity movement was uh, on the way after the BBC reports, which were screened in 1984. The, this huge solidarity movement unfolded in Ethiopia and it turned out very uh, quickly that we were taken as pawns in a sort of chess game and used in uh, the process of a forced relocation drive, which started early uh, '85, So we, the humanitarian NGOs and MSF, which at the time had a, quite a big mission there by the standards of the mid-80s, which were much lower than now, but still we had a, quite a big humanitarian mission there in the northern part of the country. And uh, we were working in uh, several relief camps, which were home something like uh, 50 to 100,000 people in a very bad physical uh, and psychological situation. And it turned out that very quickly, like uh, from January on, we could expect any time that the militias and, and party members and, and the army, well, men in uniforms in general, would surround the camp and get hold of uh, 500, 1,000 people and take them to unknown destinations, load them onto trucks either to, to another place where they, they were taken on, a, on an airplane or just trucked down to some kind of transit centers and then taken to unknown destinations. And that was part of this huge relocation drive which was presented by the government as a very ambitious land reform whose aim was to make Ethiopia independent of international assistance and to modernize the rural society, which was backwarded and uh, which didn't know exactly how to handle climate uh, change. And it was not, well, not, not in the, the global warming, but the climate accidents, uh, the, the weather problem, and that their lands were uh, washed due to overpopulations, and, and this kind of thing. So it was a kind of technical social reform, which was presented as a, due to a demographic
3: disequilibrium. disequilibrium.
1: Mm-hmm. But the thing is that the people didn't want to go. They had to be taken at gunpoint to the trucks. And major violence was occurring uh, every time there was a crackdown on, those, uh, on these people, because that's the way it should be called a real crackdown. Those people were arrested, collectively arrested, and taken to places they didn't want to join. So the problem was, well, what do we have to do? Uh, what are we here for? Do we? help people, establishing hospitals, operating on them, feeding them, and then preparing them for these forced transfers or for these deportations, or should we help people by denouncing this? but uh, they were starving, so... There was a very difficult, very sensitive dilemma. I was going back and forth between Paris and the, in Ethiopia. I was the president of Médecins Sans Frontières at the time. At one point, I had, by coincidence, had a... a lunch with a friend of mine who teaches philosophy in Paris, and I was really upset by this, and uh, I explained to him how I saw the, the dilemmas at the time. And of course, he had no answer to to the problems I was raising in front of him, but he told me, well, you should read Eichmann in Jerusalem. That might help you. Yeah. I knew the book by name, and I knew vaguely Hannah Arendt. I was uh, uh, a reader of uh, Raymond Aron, At the time I was very interested in Raymond Aron's uh, work and I'd read something Aron had had written on uh, Hannah Arendt but that was uh, all I knew about her. But as I really really needed something to to reflect upon, I got the book and, and read it. And I must say that it was quite an experience. It was both a kind of intellectual and and emotional experience. It was an emotional experience because I was born in Jerusalem and I was brought up in in France when I came to France when I was four years of age. But uh, um, I came back to Israel in 1961 just on vacation with my, my parents. I was 11. And I had in my ears the sounds of the Eichmann trial, which was broadcast in the streets. And so the the trial was quite a familiar thing for me. But as you know, as most young people say, well, these Holocaust stories and, and victim stories belong to the former generation. We've got some other things more important, more, you know, vital things to do. And so I was not very much interested in it. I was much more interested in Vietnam when I was young or in third world issues, and I'm still very much interested in third world issues today. So it was an emotional experience because I suddenly discovered a non-victimary narrative of the trial of a criminal. I really loved it. I really loved the way she was talking of fashion in this ironic, as she puts it in the, in the film, this ironic distant way, which I think was the only interesting way to speak about those horrors. So that was the first uh, lesson, both emotional and intellectual. Suddenly, reading this material with this non-emotional uh, tone became interesting. That was the, the, the first interest. And the second thing was about the issue of responsibility. Eichmann, as everybody knows, did not intend uh, to kill the Jews. He would have uh, transported goose or, 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 or spare parts if, it, if that had been the job. But uh, he transported Jews and Poles and Slovenes and Gypsies. That was the f- four t- populations he was supposed to take care of, so to speak. And uh, so what was his responsibility? How can you judge somebody who doesn't intend to kill a a person? So that was the next issue. But coming back to Ethiopia, what I saw was that the the way I understood how Anna Arendt analyzes and presents the, the, the various figures in her book was that we, the humanitarian NGOs, were somewhere halfway between the Jewish councils and Eichmann. Not from a moral uh, uh, point of view, of course, but in a practical point of view. And I like the way Arendt avoids handling moral discourses and, and teaching lessons of moral. So why halfway? Because as Eichmann, we were not threatened by the local violence. Uh, We were outsiders, and uh, so we could make a decision on, well, should we be here, or uh, can we uh, just step uh, out of uh, this uh, situation? And we were close to the Jewish councils because, like the Jewish council's members, we wanted nothing but the good of the people we were there to treat. We wanted to help them, we wanted to help them to survive, we wanted to treat them, to feed them, only good things we wanted for them. So this is the reason why, very uh, grossly speaking, I think we were halfway. So that was a new way, for me at least, to pose the problem, to handle the problem of our own specific responsibility. And in the course of the reading and, and in the course of reading uh, some other uh, essays by Hannah Arendt, more, more specifically uh, what was published in France under the title of uh, Responsabilité Morale et Régime Dictatorial, Moral Responsibility... Mm-hmm. And personal, personal Responsibility personal under, responsi- di- under Dictatorship. Under Dictatorship, yeah. mm-hmm. which brought me a lot of uh, thoughts about this. I decided <coughs> uh, uh, that we could handle the problem in terms of if we stay, we have to protest because we have a space for speaking out, or we should step out because otherwise we are active accomplices of this deportation. We know what's going on, we could understand, you know, little by little, what was the purpose of these deportations. We could understand how big the lies of this Stalinist regime was. So the, the situation was pretty clear, except that there was no good solution, of course. If we stayed, we, be, we, we were accomplice. If we pull out, we were abandoning the people, the, the dropping our mission. So my, my proposition to MSF, which uh, was the one which was adopted by MSF at the end, was to go public and to explain to the public that their donations, their involvement in Ethiopia was doing more harm than good, that we were helping the government to kill its own people and not to relieve them from the suffering. The intention was not to kill anyway, it was not a genocide, the intention was to deport them but by, just to give you an idea, by 1985 the first cause of mortality was deportation, it was not starvation. Of course it was the deportation of people who had been starving for months and months but still it was deportation because in the relief camp people were not dying any longer. They were, at least the mortality rate had dropped. But they were dying in the in the buses, in the plane, the, in the holding camps and transit centers where they were taken. So by being part of this process of deportation, we were being part of the causes of uh, mortality. So we became a problem and not a solution for the starving people the, uh, uh, there. And that was a way for me to discover that, well, to find out that... This say, you know, do no harm uh, first, uh, primum non nocere, uh, first do no harm, Mm. which is, of course, used as uh, common wisdom by the humanitarian uh, organization or or aid institutions in general, is used only to speak of the others. You're not supposed to apply this common wisdom to to yourself. Uh, This is what I, I, I found out, because do no harm, okay, it's easy to say to the others, do no harm, but what happens when you are in a situation where you think you've been more harmful than helpful to people? Well, I discovered that this was a very difficult step. It it was a mental obstacle that was difficult to uh, overcome. So we decided to go public. I tried to mobilize the other NGOs in Addis Abel. Many of them told me, yes, you're right, this regime is absolutely horrible, it's obnoxious, but we won't speak out because we are neutral. We don't want to take political stances. We are purely humanitarian. Mm -hmm. So they decided that they would not be involved in politics. And I'm not taking for granted that we accepted to be uh, involved in politics and they uh, refused. What my position uh, uh, is drawn from, uh, well, uh, General Arendt's uh, approach is that we didn't have the choice to be non-political or to be political. We were either consciously, willingly political, or unconsciously and uh, unwittingly political. So the issue was to do the politics we wanted to do, or to do the Stalinist politics. For me, that was the alternative. Mm. So this is the reason why we went public, and we got kicked out of the country in uh, December 85. And, well, that was a big uh, lesson for me because, uh, well, we had a very broad support from uh, public opinion, from the media. We were not, you know, isolated people, but among the, the NGOs community, we were totally isolated at the time. It took them several years to admit, to acknowledge that there had been a problem and that most of them had been on the wrong side of the choice. But that has happened Again, more recently in uh, the Rwandan border after the genocide in 1994, when uh, a huge flow of uh, people uh, walked across the border and gathered in uh, huge settlements uh, across the border. You may have noticed that I'm trying to avoid using the terms refugees and refugees camps, because that was the issue and that was the problem. Mm. Then if you talk of them as refugees, then the problem is solved, there is no more problem. And that was the mm. issue. The, there was, as you probably remember, there was a war and a genocide which took place from April through June 1994 in in Rwanda after the attack of the plane of the president, Javier uh, Imana, mm. violence erupted and about 800,000 Tutsis, the minority uh, group of Rwanda, were uh, slaughtered by militias and by the Rwandan armies and to some extent by their neighbors. But that might come back in the discussion. But. Uh, Contrary to what is generally said, it is not a popular upheaval. It's an organized destruction of a part of the people, and that's the reason why it's not just a civil war or just unorganized violences, but a real, uh, a state real genocide. Crime. Yes, yeah. yes, it's state mm. crime. Mm-hmm. When the opposition armed groups were arriving to Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, and uh, were uh, about to seize the power, there was a massive flow of people who were taken, I wouldn't say by force, but out of fear, by force, in a general movement which, in their minds, was not very organized, but which, in the, in the mind of their uh, leaders, were very uh, well organized. These movements were to Tanzania to a certain part of Rwanda and to the neighboring uh, Congo Zaire which became Congo these these movements were aimed at emptying the country mm. so that the new government would reign over an empty country just on bushes and snakes as they uh, used to uh, uh, put it but in those camps there was uh, a, a local authority, as it is the case in any refugee uh, camp. That local authority was called the interim government, the government who'd been the origin and the energy of the genocide. And what happened is that in this newly created sanctuary, a new genocidal force was being uh, rebuilt under the the guise of refugee camps; it was a military sanctuary which was re-established with the protection of the then president of Zaire, Mobutu, who was close friend to this government. The problem was, again, what are we supposed to do there? So there was this cholera epidemic, which was a kind of uh, providential event because it allowed every people to rush to those camps and to say, well, it's a life-saving issue. There's an emergency, and we as MSF did this too, uh, be it only because we are one of the well best knowers of cholera epidemics in refugee camps because we've been through a number of epidemics, so we know how to handle this. So we went there, but after a few weeks, because cholera epidemics do not last long, we came back with the question, well, what are we going to do now? It is absolutely obvious, you know, there were murders all the time, absolutely all the time, any dissident, any people being suspected of not siding along with the interim government were, were mercilessly eliminated. We couldn't stay in our hospitals overnight because it was too dangerous. You know, there are not that many situations where in a refugee camp we, we can't stay in the hospital. It was too dangerous because militiamen were uh, going to the hospitals and killing any people who would be suspected of being either a Tutsi or being member of a family critical of the government. So we could find, you know, babies being uh, killed or, or young, boy, anybody. So that was another type of humanitarian dilemma, so to speak. And we... We gathered with the major NGOs which were operational in those, in those camps by September. The, the, the whole thing had started in July. And by September, most, I would say, major, uh, i.e., experienced NGOs knew that there was a serious problem. So we gathered like 20, 20 of us, uh, Care, Oxfam, uh, Save the Children Fund, uh, Concern, uh, Catholic Relief Services, uh, etc. And we said, well, we've got to do something about this. We can't carry on as if these were uh, refugees. There were maybe one-third or one-half of the people who were really refugees. They're civilians uh, fleeing for their lives. And the rest were uh, soldiers, accomplices of the genocide, militia people, etc. So we sent a letter to the uh, Security Council asking for police force to come in the camp and separate the refugees from the killers and uh, the accomplices of the killers. Of course, it was quite difficult to, to carry out in a very uh, precise way, but in gross terms, it was not that difficult. It was in practical terms, it was feasible. Uh, though we, there could have been some exception, you know, people taken wrongly to police camps and people being kept in refugees camps, though they had been involved in the killings. But in general terms, it was quite easy. And the issue was to neutralize these sanctuaries and to make it a real humanitarian sanctuary, which was different from a, a military camp. The humanitarian sanctuary had to be protected by the international community. So we sent a letter to Boutros-Ghali and and Boutros-Ghali took it seriously. The major head NGOs had signed this letter uh, and he read it at the Security Council uh, meeting. Mm. But this didn't raise any interest so well, they didn't want to vote a resolution, they didn't want to set up a police force, they didn't want to do anything about it. They just wanted to send relief aid and that was it. So we found ourselves back in the previous situation, what should we do? And what amazed me at the time is that everybody said, well, if the international community doesn't take its own responsibilities, why should we? So they have to take their responsibility, and we can be held responsible for what we do. As if we were not supposed to be responsible for what we do as individuals, as institutions. So most people decided to resume their routine, activities, business as usual. And that that was it. I remember I went to the camp at one stage, had a discussion with some UNHCR field officers, who who were old friends of mine, former MSF people or people from UNHCR I'd known, long time, they trusted me, they they could speak to me in in, in confidence, and they said to me, look, this organization, I won't quote it, but they gave me the name, this organization, we went to them this humanitarian private relief organization. We went to them and showed them that amongst their uh, workers, local workers, they've got 185 people who were listed on a criminal list. They are convinced of genocide, these people. There might be, there was no criminal court at the time, but they they were convicted of being members of genocidal militias. They went to this institution and said, look, these these are your uh, workers. And the, the, the head of the institution, the local head of the institution said, Well, no, 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 we're not involved in politics. Please leave us alone with this. We've got serious work to carry out. We're busy. So let us do our uh, work. They didn't want to hear anything about it. No problem. You know, the problems belong to the others. They don't have any problems. So that was the case. And again, uh, the uh, MSF left the, the camp. In Ethiopia, we were kicked out, but we, had, we knew that uh, we would be kicked out. In, in Rwanda, we were not kicked out. We decided that uh, we would pull out voluntarily because we didn't want to be part of this huge lie. I mean by lie, I mean that UNHCR decided that these people were refugees. NGOs decided that in these refugees camps they would establish uh, normal relief, humanitarian setups, nutrition, hospitals, schools, vocational centers, anything and. Uh, just a, a kind of make-believe thing. It's, it was nothing s- such as a refugee uh, camp. And I had a discussion, a very tough discussion, with Sergio Villara de Mello about, about this, and he told me that the UNHCR didn't have any choice, that they had to declare those people as a collective refugee community this, in this prima facie process uh, which allows the UN Agency for Refugees to to give the status of refugee to a collectivity and not on an individual uh, basis. And that was the problem, because as soon as they were declared refugees, well, the rest was a normal consequence. Uh, Protection, assistance were the normal consequence uh, of this. And that was a lie. And uh, I think that UNHCR should have taken its own responsibilities, refusing to give the status of refugee on a collective basis but going back to an individual uh, basis mobilizing the, the the required means to carry out this difficult mission but it was feasible and uh, any experienced people knew it was uh, feasible but they decided they wouldn't because that would raise problem that would raise sensitive issues amongst the local uh, governments and with with the western governments too and again most Uh, NGOs decided that because their intentions were good, their deeds had to be good. But what happened is that two years later, the war broke out in those refugee camps. They were attacked, and that was predictable, and that had been predicted. These camps were attacked by the Rwandan army of the new government, and those people who'd been collectively declared as victims, because they were refugees, were collectively uh, considered then as criminals, because, you know, if you have a collective status, then it can shift very okay. quickly from one side to the other side of the line. There was a merciless manhunt in eastern Zaire, where approximately 200,000 people died, died only because they were Hutus, and they, they were killed by the Rwandan army, by the guerrilla uh, movement uh, supported by the Rwandan army. It was a butchery. It was... a and a, a terrible disaster, and during which, I must say, I won't elaborate on this, but just to let you know, during which the, the behavior of some humanitarian institutions was much worse, I mean nothing to do with what the ICRC did during World War II, because they, they, a number of relief NGOs and, and uh, UN agencies became active accomplice of the, this man-hunt. So this is just to, to stress the fact that specific responsibility arise from uh, humanitarian uh, practice in violent uh, uh, situations where you are involved in, in, in a war situation, but you're not a belligerent, mm-hmm. and you're a do-gooder, and this encourages to avoid raising the problems of being an actor in a war or in a very violent situation. But as an actor, we have responsibilities, and I think that Arendt, uh, in what, what she said about the Jewish councils and uh, individual responsibility in a situation of dictatorship, of, or, well, I would say, violence in in uh, uh, general, helps us to delineate field of individual and institutional responsibility, and that was the main issue, I think, which was addressed and, for me, very uh, useful, very rich, by Arendt. other Power, respond to Ronnie. I hope we'll come back at some point to of, among the many very interesting things that you had to say. I, I would love to hear you talk more about how it was possible for you to do something which I take as extremely remarkable, to read Eichmann in Jerusalem and to identify your own situation and dilemma with the dilemma of the Jewish councils. This takes an active imagination that in any context, but particularly
3: yours, is really breathtaking. I'll start just by echoing that. I've never thought of that similarity between the Jewish Mm -hmm. councils and the aid workers. And what's so especially important about it is the idea that most actors are motivated by attention to a number of variables, you know, the self, (laughs) money, family, professional aggrandizement, et cetera. But in this instance, that the variable, that at least arguably in most cases, and we know from aid workers that those, those variables that I've mentioned are at work in a profound way, with many in journalism, very much the same, but that the primary variable, let's assume, giving everybody the benefit of the doubt, for Jewish leaders in Budapest and every place else who are making these judgments about how much information to disclose and how much to withhold and whether to try to incite Uh, rebellion or another form of action that what they're looking out for in withholding or in disclosing is the welfare of those people. Mm -hmm. What you're looking out for in deciding whether to actually suspend aid from the camps in Goma in the period between 1994 and 1996 when the war happens, when the Rwandans finally decide to make that decision for the aid community, is the welfare of the people in those camps and broadening it to the people in Rwanda as well who are still at the border being attacked by those camps. But I think that's a really important thing that you've hit upon, is even if your regard is vaguely pure, you know, no way pure, but if that's your proximate reason for being there and that's your primary driver, you can still end up totally morally compromised as you weigh these incommensurables. I think it's just a very, very interesting parallel, which I also was very struck by. Which brings me to what I think is the first point that I take from what you're saying that is Arendtian, and that is that nobody is immune from taking responsibility for judgment or action, for the judgments they make or for the actions that flow from those judgments or sometimes precede those judgments. And that the assault that greeted Arendt's discussion of the Jewish councils and the Jewish leaders, I think, and I'm sure this is maybe provocative, but was rooted in a collective feeling in many communities that next to the crimes of the Holocaust, not exactly who cares what the Jewish leaders did, but what do you expect or what's to say next to Hitler, next to Eichmann? How could she put Eichmann and Jewish leaders in the same book, in the same account, in the same continuum of moral judgment. And that outrage was rooted, I mean, if you, if you, you know, we understand the emotion behind that, and, and it's a totally understandable response, but it's rooted in a sense that, in fact, next to certain entities that are atop the hierarchy of the horribles, it's like there's no poetry after Auschwitz, there's no other judgment after Auschwitz, there's no other responsibility. And she's like, yeah, there is. We've all got to look at ourselves. And that is, I think, what many aid workers and, and God knows journalists and, and human rights advocates as well what we are able to juxtapose ourselves against renders us largely immune from self scrutiny, from external scrutiny, and indeed, much worse, prone to reification and heroization, which is the worst of all. But I think that that Rentian idea that everybody is an individual and an agent and responsible for their action, regardless of what the context is, is really, really interesting. Now, what flows from that, though, in the humanitarian context that I think is really important to stress, which you've implied, but just to reiterate is you can have lots of judgments about rightness and wrongness and about slippage along this continuum, the gray zones, Primo levies, gray zones, which is what, what you inhabit in these situations, and yet if you're an aid worker, especially the leader of an aid organization, at a time like the one you've described either in Ethiopia or Congo, you don't have the luxury simply of judgment and simply of responsibility, but you have the burden of action and of decisions. And While you've made the case for why there was a better approach than the one that was taken, just to round out the picture that Roni has presented, the feeling of those who stayed in the camps and some organizations decided to leave because they felt like they were complicit with the genocidaire, those who decided to stay, back to the idea of the, the people in the camps being the singular variable, were doing so because they felt if they left, the outcome would not be that the genocidaire would somehow be starved and the civilians would emerge, the innocent, let's say, or the people who weren't implicated in the genocide, that the waters would part and you would get the genocidaire to the left and the civilians and the innocent to the right. What would in fact happen if you close the camps is the genocidaire would be the most able to fend for themselves, the richest, the wiliest, the savviest, the best connected abroad to people in the south of France, and actually the people who would be the most affected Reminds me of Kanan's point about economic sanctions in Iraq, you know, the vision of the international community in opposing sanctions on Saddam Hussein in the wake of the Gulf War was to punish the regime, but the effect of those sanctions, by and large, was to punish the people. So the UNHCR and others who decided to stay, not defending them at all, I mean, again, but this is the mentality, even if all you're thinking about is the people in the camps, you close down the camps because you don't want to be complicit in a genocidal regime that's murdering people within the camps and still intent on committing genocide back in Rwanda, or you keep the camps open in the hopes that you're buying time for entities outside the camps, because ultimately, what are humanitarians? You know, a bunch of people with macaroni and tents and medicines at best. But you're buying time for the so-called international community to step up and to do something political, fundamentally political. I mean, every act that is taken by a humanitarian in a camp is a political act, but the hefty political stuff in order to really dislocate that environment would really have to be done at a higher pay grade. And yet, Roni's point consistently, which is such an important point, is by being there you are actually giving the politicians who have the capacity to separate maybe arguably the genocidaire from the civilians or have the capacity to use their leverage on the states that are supporting the genocidaire. But by being there, you give those states an alibi. So you're just kicking the can down the road because they say, well, we're doing something. Look, we're feeding all these people. And I'll come to Darfur in a second because it's, of course, very parallel to the situation today. It's one thing to judge, but you have to also act. And any action, your action, had one set of consequences. If the UN had decided to leave, we don't know what the consequences would have been. Maybe it would have meant that the civilians would have just flooded back to Rwanda and you could have staved off the war and those 200,000 people wouldn't be dead. Maybe it would have meant that they would have fled into the jungle earlier. Who knows? But regardless, you can't see those things up front. Second thought in relation to your comments, I thought that was really interesting, maybe just a little personal. But you, you mentioned that when you read Aaron in the context of Ethiopia, what you were taken by was her very non emotional tone and the sort of rigor of that. That here she's describing these monstrous events, and she clearly has a strong emotional attachment to them, but she, mm-hmm. she abnegates at very important moments and in ways that make her I think, much more persuasive. So just a a little tiny personal story. Some of you who saw my presentation yesterday know that I I have strong feelings about many things. (laughs) And uh, when I wrote A, A Problem From Hell, it was in the wake of having been very young and being in the Balkans and having screwed up myself and being very emotionally attached to the people there, for sure. So my first draft of this book, *A Problem from Hell*, about American responses to genocide, it was on fire. I was so angry and I was so alienated. And, and uh, Anna Husarska, who's here, is one of the great journalists of our time. Read the early draft so she could testify. This it was awful. I mean, it was just singularly awful. And what I did, I actually just in the midst of it, in addition to getting Anna's edits, but I read *Eichmann in Jerusalem*. I had read it before, but I went back to it, and I remember thinking that all the facts were there, and it was it was what it was. It wasn't truly awful, but it was pretty awful because the effect of it was when you read a book like that and you're the reader, you end up arguing with the voice, that very loud, present voice, arguing with the author rather than arguing with the people I wanted people to be arguing with or debating with the people I wanted people to argue with, who were the bystanders. Those are the people I wanted you to be wrestling with rather than this annoying author who was in the way. And so in the wake of that, did a massive re-edit and just completely took that tone out of it and tried to make it, I mean, the emotion is embedded in every page, but it's, you won't, if, 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 at least if I was effective, you were, will be much less prone to arguing with me. You'll be arguing with these people who are making the arguments that they were making at the time as to why they would be doing nothing about the Gomas or the Rwandas or the, today, the Darfors. Okay, so that's the second point. And the third, which I, I haven't really thought about enough, and I, I, of all people, should be thinking about it more, but you mentioned intent. What's really interesting, then, is that we have this legal instrument, the Genocide Convention, and, as many of you know, the crime of genocide is predicated on an intent to destroy an ethnic, national, or religious group as such. So it's totally intent-based. It's not like you have a group of 500,000 people, and if you kill 250,001, you've committed genocide. It's if you find an individual and they possess the intent, and you you need crimes to show that intent, that is what would brand you a genocidaire, And so uh, it's a very controversial term and there's jurisprudence that's being developed out of the International Criminal Tribunals for Yugoslavia and Rwanda. But one of the things the court has stumbled upon is exactly this Eichmann problem, which is what do you do with the small men who they don't even necessarily despise Jews, they don't even despise Tutsi. They have, and I made a list of things that they have, maybe the intent to make money, the intent to follow orders, the intent to acquire land, the intent even sometimes in their heads anyway to protect their families, and the intent, and this is the one that reminds me of Eichmann, but to be large, to be big, to elevate themselves, whether materially or, or otherwise. And the the small fry who kills, I mean, there was a guy, you might remember this case, it was uh, in Birchko, I think, the guy who literally referred to himself as the Serb Adolf or something. And he killed something like, I mean, single-handedly, which takes some doing, he didn't have any of the machinery of the Nazis. He killed over 100 people, 118 people, I think. But the court found him... Not at the helm of something large. All he was doing is he wanted to have Muslims for breakfast. I mean, he was on a warpath. To me, his mentality was completely genocidal because again, he was killing not for anything anybody did, but simply because of who they were, because of group membership. But he was too much of a you know a town loser basically to count. He wasn't grand in the way that evil was imagined to be to be grand and the genocider in particular. And the fourth and final point comes back to the discussion we had yesterday about. And it's my favorite part of Arendt, so I always keep coming back to it, but is of this question of if you are merely human, and that's all you have to refer to, if you're left invoking human rights, if you're left without a state, if you're left stateless, if you're in Goma, in these camps, in the wake of Rwanda, and you're saying, excuse me, here's the refugee convention, sir, could I have some more, please? If that's what you have recourse to, Aaron said, you know, you're in deep trouble. You're never more naked than at that moment. And and we, Ladan and myself and Azar, talked about the degree to which human rights, the human rights movement or human rights groups were an answer to that in any way, or, or the humanitarian movement. And so what I thought of just in this final point, I wanted to stress for you because I, it may not be as obvious to those of you who don't live in, in Ronnie's world, but we laymen who aren't humanitarians blur human rights and humanitarian. I mean, to us, they're the same thing. It's about helping people. It's about, again, having the variable that you have in mind is those human beings. For somebody in Ronnie's business, they're often very much at odds, a human rights framework and a humanitarian framework. And in these camps, I say camp, I mean, it doesn't even matter if they're in camps, in societies, within, even if you're still in your home, but you're part of the stateless within, you know, you, you've ceased to belong, you have these do-gooders who have descended upon the scene, and if you're a human rights-minded person, your job is to be measuring state conduct or the conduct of non-state actors according to a set of principles. So if you're abridging freedom of speech or freedom of assembly or you're murdering or you're torturing... The human rights person needs to take note of that and hold you accountable verbally, usually is all it amounts to, verbal accountability or setting the record straight. The humanitarian is the person who's trying to to feed and to clothe and to supply medicine and protection of a very different kind, but it's a much more material assistance. So it's not about denunciation of a state for deviance from these norms. It's about supplication, it's about uh, not necessarily supplication of the state, but but actually supplying individuals who are in need with these goods. Now these are often seen to be very much at cross purposes. And so what they grapple with in this realm of incommensurables is, okay, you're in Darfur today, you can get access to an estimated 2 million displaced in Darfur itself. They're inside, so they're not in Chad. They're still vulnerable to the Sudanese government to the Janjaweed. But you know that you can feed these people, but you also know that the aid can't be eaten for the most part. Some of the biscuits can, but, but a lot of the aid can't be eaten unless it's heated. And you know that in order to heat the aid, the women famously have to leave the camps and go and get firewood in order to come back and cook the aid so that they can feed their families. And you know, if you're an aid worker, that going to get the firewood in order to cook the aid, in order to feed your families, requires basically passing through the Janjaweed patrols that still exist outside the camps. Because again, these camps... This is the other misunderstanding that I had before I got into this But Camps aren't camps. They don't have fences around them for the most part. You know, they're just fields of humanity living in, in relative misery, mitigated more often than not by these aid groups. There's no protection. There's no outside military force of any meaningful kind. There's an African Union force, as it happens in Darfur, but very spread out across the country. So you know that these women are being raped as they go to get the firewood, to cook the aid to feed the families. What do you do? You're best positioned. You're in the camp. Do you tally the incidence of rapes around the camps in order to alert the world that this humanitarian alibi isn't a solution, that this, what do you call it, the pawns, aren't the answer. Henri Levy said uh, famously in the Bosnia War that the aid workers were passing out sandwiches at the gates of Auschwitz, that that was the equivalent of what they were doing. Well, you're an aid worker, you can pass out sandwiches. They're going to die if you don't pass out sandwiches, you believe. But they're going to die eventually, some of them anyway, lots of them, if you don't become a political actor and start to use the access you have in order to document the abuses that might in turn play into politics at a state level. So back to Aaron. I take Azar's point yesterday of, like, political action of the state-based kind can't be what we turn to. That was her point about Ignatius. I don't think it was exactly as anti-Ignatius as it came out, I'd like to think. But it was really about, like, wait a minute, why does everybody who wants to do good in the world feel that they have to go into government to do it? Well, because guess what? In these moments, because states still have the monopoly on violence, you end up stuck. And that's what, again, I think she saw the limits of what we would be able to do without the state, unless we change the nature of the state. So let me just leave it there with another another conundrum.
1: Yeah.
3: Thank you.
2: This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.